Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This week, A Fish Trap and I continue our discussion of Grace of Kings and look at nobility in the book, and to some extent various epic traditions more broadly, through the Rima and Jizu episode. We refer to my reading that every member of the old noble houses acquits themselves with honor throughout the book, which I extend to a reading that there is something inherently special about the DNA of nobles in Grace of Kings, at which point we discover that the recurring theme of this discussion, we read this very differently. Along the way, we get into how Kuni, not a noble, and Mata, a hero from the old noble houses, embody or contradict our reading. The discussion opens and closes with Mata, his extraordinary heroism, and his fitness to rule. The assumption that's sometimes buried in there of, like with Mata, that there's no question, it's simply assumed that by virtue of who his family is, and the stories his uncle tells him that this is what he was born to do. And somebody else may have momentarily screwed things up, but then that means his job is to set everything back the way it should be. Mm-hmm. At the parallel to that, and I think kind of the foreshadowing of what Mata is in for, is when you have one of the smaller principalities that attempts to rebel, and they find the shepherd who is really nothing more than a shepherd, but his father was king, and they say, hey, you're king, that instead of having somebody who just effortlessly assumes the role of king, you have a shepherd who's like, holy crap, what am I doing here? And he he ends up dying. Yes. And he's taken down by the bean counter, as I recall. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty startling indictment in terms of the way it seemed to be framed that this was pointless nobody gained and this was somebody who if they'd left him alone to be out in his fields or being a fisherman or whatever it was off in the faceless masses he would have been perfectly fine he could have you know lived the rest of his life and died without ever having to go through that agony but because they said this is who your father is He got trapped in something for which he was completely and totally unprepared. And the whole, I was born to do this, did not hold any water whatsoever. But he saved the city. I agree that the rebellion of his kingdom was ultimately pointless. But had they not gone and found the noble, his city was going to get destroyed. Right? Like, isn't the point of his sacrifice that he is essentially exchanging himself in order to get his city preserved? Yeah. Because this, this gets true. back to my thoughts about the noble families and the institution of the noble families always acquitting themselves with well and honor by the old standards of honor. That, you know, eventually the only thing you can do as the person of royal blood is sacrifice yourself for the people that you rule. Yeah, and I mean, that is an ideal in many different cultures, but I think I just read it with a slightly different slant, that as soon as he was plucked out of the crowd, and honestly, reading it, I got the impression from the narration that they could have picked anybody. It didn't really matter, because he had no recollection of any of that royal state. This is interesting, but go on. That it became inevitable, that there was, that he was trapped. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And at the very end, that choice to sacrifice himself was the only time he actually got to choose anything on his own to have any say in what was going to happen to him. The impression of the framing that I got, because the perspective seemed to be dominated by the bean counter, as a certain amount of unhappiness with being stuck in this position of forcing what's basically a kid to sacrifice himself for something that had done nothing but take him away from the life he had and trap him with no preparation whatsoever. This was not seen as, it was noble in one respect, and it was tragic and as a result of other people's political machinations. Yes. So the bean counter's name is Kindo Marana, the Empire's chief tax collector. I, I agree that the kid is trapped. So this felt a lot to me like almost a kind of self-contained story. I mean, many tragedies boil themselves down to <laughs> someone gets themselves stuck in an untenable situation and dies. Yeah. <laughs> and to some extent, what is important about the tragedy is the way in which they get themselves stuck in the untenable situation. For instance, the Greeks would say it should be about their noble flaw. The only flaw that this kid had was that he happened to be an heir of the noble family. So, a couple possibilities. You could pluck up anybody and say they are going to be the heir of the noble family, right? You can just pretend that you've got the heir. Wasn't the, uh, didn't that happen to the Russians after the Russian Revolution? There was a princess floating around for quite a while who was reputed to have survived. Yeah. So, I mean, the council could have plucked up anybody and made them the figurehead ruler, but they, they plucked up this, this kid who was actually the heir of the noble family. By that point, events had already been set in motion that the kingdom was trying to declare itself independent and Kindo Marana was coming and Kindo Marana was going to win that fight and terrible things were going to happen to the kingdom and the city that had rebelled. And yes, the kid's only function is to sacrifice himself to save the city. And theoretically, any figurehead, whether or not they're a member of the noble family, if they could bring themselves to go forth and sacrifice themselves rather than trying to sneak out, anybody could have served that purpose of being the sacrificial lamb because that's all the kid was. So yeah, it's, it's a tragic story that, for me at least, got most of its power out of the fact that this was the last heir of the noble family, and he acted as nobles are supposed to act. And that was, I, I really remember that being a crucial scene. Remember what he promised. I have ceased all resistance. I'm at your mercy. General Naaman nodded. Jizu looked to his ministers. They were witnessing a ceremony, a manner of ritual and politics. No, it's it's the part before that where Oh yeah. Where they make the agreement where the boy says, You haven't attacked and so I know the lives matter to you and we can counterattack and if we do, we'll be completely dead. Some of your men will die and everybody will hate you. Mm hmm You won't look good. You can make an example of me and spare my people. Yes. And I didn't see that as necessarily nobility. But immediately before that, the minister says, you are the symbol of the will and people of Rima. And one of the other ministers said, because the city is dying. The general is dammed up the river, yeah. waiting for starvation, thirst, and disease. And one of the other ministers says, 
Maybe we should order some of the citizenry to commit suicide to demonstrate their loyalty to Rima. And then another one says, let's organize the women and children to be a siege-breaking unit. We open the city gates, make them rush at the imperial forces, the emperor's soldiers, faced with so many feminine and childish faces, may hesitate, unable to cut them down. If they do start killing the women and children, we can retreat and make another plan. And the king says... King Jizu could not believe what he was hearing. Shameful. You've lectured me all these months about the honor of the House of Rima. Now you suggest the people of Rima make meaningless sacrifices to save your worthless lives. The people op- offer their treasure and labor and maintain all of us in luxury with the single expectation that we will protect them in times of danger. This is the obligation you wish to search. So, Yeah, but I think I think there's two different things going on here. First is is the notion that the job of the ruler, and you find this in many places, that, that the ultimate job of the ruler is to serve the people, mm-hmm. not that the people serve the ruler. And, and even if the ruler is nothing more than a figurehead, I mean, I remember uh, as, a, as a child, this, this made a bit, big impact on me as a child, not having been raised in a monarchy, to, uh, to visit England. And one of the stories I must have heard Every single place we went had anything to do with the uh, the House of Windsor. Was that apparently during World War II, the royal family said they were going to send the children away, and I believe the Queen said she was going to send her family away. And it was like the King said, "I'm going to send the Queen away," and the Queen said, "Why are you staying?" And he said, "I'm staying for the people," and she said, "I'm staying for you." Mm-hmm. This this notion that. The last person who should be standing is the king or queen. That although anybody in Britain at the time would have given their lives to make sure that the king and queen, you know, the, the ultimate figureheads survived, that the king and queen were like, no, we don't leave. We, we stay. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's always seemed to me to be, you know, one of those stories that people tell themselves in terms of how they understand why you would have royalty is mm-hmm. that kind of symbolic maneuver. But I don't think that's really what's going on in Grace of Kings. I don't think it has to do with nobility, because with King Jizu in particular, the framing that's given to him and the emphasis that's made all the way up to the scene before the the big battle is he doesn't like this life. You know, he was working his way up to asking out the pretty girl, and he mm-hmm. figured he'd always be an oysterman. This is this is not what he picked for himself. But I think the key here is, if you consider him as a contrast to, to Mata and Kuni, that the one thing that Jizu has that makes him compatible to Kuni and not compatible to Mata. So, so the comparison between Jizu and Mata is... We've got a backstory of somebody in our family being important. So by virtue of being born into that family, that's what makes us important. But what Jizu has that's parallel to Kuni is empathy. He doesn't think of himself as someone who deserves to rule. He thinks of himself as somebody who ended up and is going to make the best of it, but he does not forget that there are people who are really who he could have been and who he was only a few months before. So I think one thing about that is that it is very interesting that this is another another case of the many virtues of rulership and that, Mm -hmm. that level of empathy. And 
And honestly, the level of empathy and, res- and sense of responsibility that he has may be stronger than Cooney's level of empathy and responsibility. I don't think we ever see Cooney tested in that way. Yeah, but, well, Cooney, we do see it at some points, but I think the difference with Jisoo is the the outcome is inevitable. And Cooney does not end up in positions where the outcome is inevitable. I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the different ways that we're reading the story is that I'm a lot, I think I key in a lot more on how someone is supposed to function in society and that you seem more interested in kind of the other possibilities and the fact that there's always change available. And so what seems really important to me about the Jesus story is that he's royal blood. And that means that when you declare that there's going to be a new kingdom and you're going to throw off the shackles of the empire, you go find the guy who's royal blood. And when the city is in trouble, it is up to the royal as opposed to the ministers who are ostensibly more experienced and actually kind of should know how to do all of this. It's up to the king to say, no, we're not going to sacrifice the women and children to try to save ourselves. And it's up to the king to, because after he goes and makes the deal that says, sacrifice me for my city, he goes out to the general who's been asked to bring him back as a trophy so that we can have the great triumphal parade. And Jizu incinerates himself. And in so doing, he destroys the seal of Rima, the symbol of his kingship. And he kind of violates the agreement he's made. He finds a way to continue the defiance of his kingdom against the rulership of the empire. And the general acknowledges and says, he's lived up to a promise greater than the one he made to me. The people of the city are safe from the sword of uh, Zana today. He loads the ministers into prison carts to bring them back to Pan and feed them to the emperor's menagerie. That I I think see that's that, that episode where... that episode reads to me as being about noble blood and the obligations of noble blood and living up to the obligations of noble blood and that in fact you know where you said and I kind of agree with you that you could have this same kind of story and just pick anybody out of the crowd rather than the guy who who was of noble blood. I I see it as really kind of important that he actually be of noble blood and then he actually plays out those expectations. But I have cut you off. What what was important to you about that part of the scene? I think I think first of all the noble blood in the case of Jizu is he is not like Mata. Page 193 where his father's words to him while his father was still alive was don't ever be ambitious mm-hmm. Here, here's where you're at this is fine and his father was probably well aware of the risks of yes getting to be a figurehead so don't get yourself into that it is not as though jesus woke up one morning and this is this is emphasized over and over unlike mata he didn't wake up one morning and say you know i i really want that responsibility i have that ambition he was manipulated into it and and this is the other key is when the ministers say let's toss out 50 percent of the population along with all the children by their very suggestion they are proving not necessarily that jesus is noble but that they are not yes that we have not answered the question of whether or not jesus has what it takes to rule or any sort of right to rule but we have undeniably shown and been shown that the ministers 
do not have that right. Yes. So there's still this open question as to whether or not Jesus simply by nature of his birth, but I think the empathy is, it is not that nobility makes one empathic, it is empathy makes one noble. And the other thing that echoes for me is when Mata decides, if I'm going to get off this island, I have to make this horrible choice where I'm going to sacrifice thousands of my soldiers to Tazu's whirlpool. Mm-hmm. That Mazu's like, all right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I don't recall anywhere in there that he's like, oh, goodness. I don't know. That's an awful lot of people who are going to die. No, he's like, these are people who should happily sacrifice themselves so that I can be where I belong. And that is the exact opposite of how Jizu is seeing things. And in fact, Jizu is, is very much an illustration of who really is noble, not in the sense of royal, but nobility of being, you know, an, an honorable person. He's the only one who's showing that honor in this scene. So. And and the echo as well, and the reason I think that this, the narration is trying to uphold this is the fact that at the very end of the scene, instead of it being, well, because we have two choices based on the way these things usually play out according to the tropes, mm-hmm. either General Nauman can say, well, he just destroyed the seal and he killed himself and now I don't have somebody to take back to the emperor. Okay, I'm killing everybody in this city. Or General Nauman can say, well, let's scrape together what we can and okay, the city, I'll respect everything and, and you guys go on about your way and I'll, you know, maybe leave a uh, somebody kind of in charge of you, you know, collect taxes and whatnot. Instead, General Nauman says, okay, round up all the ministers. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that that narration, the, the, that additional little paragraph is making it clear, especially against Nauman's response of why the hell did I have to be put in this position and force this kid into this position? General Nauman is not at all fooled as to who really orchestrated the entire thing. Right. I think that also underlines the fact that these are people who do not deserve to be left in charge. That they have not shown themselves honorable and noble in that respect. by, by and, and I think the story is setting up that you have to have that empathy. And that you cannot see yourself as someone for whom others should sacrifice themselves so freely on your behalf if you are to have the right to rule. So much of it is about emphasis, right? Because yeah. because for you, it's that last paragraph and the let's get rid of the ministers because the ministers are truly the terrible people. And it's very clear that what's going on is the terrible people. And for me, what's important is... He's lived up to a promise greater than the one he made to me. The people of the city are safe. Like, that it is, in fact, Jesus' continued defiance and the fact that his continued defiance is an enactment of his status as the rightful ruler who finds a way to both save his people and defy the empire. And mm-hmm. and this gets back to my point about institutions. I maintain that every person out of the formerly noble houses, acquits themselves with the honor of, you know, they, they are honorable, they show empathy with the notable exception of Mata, who's doing other things, but in general, yes. that, like, they are being 
rulers as you are supposed to be a ruler, and that with the notable exception of Cooney, no one else who tries to be a ruler does any of that very well. And I think that it's important, and I think the text is actually kind of saying the people, like, it, it, within the story of the Grace of Kings, the noble houses, there's something about, I, I mean, maybe it's probably over-reading to say there's something about the fact that they are of the noble houses, but... Well, I think it is, because if, if that were true, then Cooney would, it wouldn't be his story. I think right. we would have Mata represented a little bit more sympathetically than we're, than we see in some places. I agree. So, so I think Cooney, by virtue of his exceptionalism, kind of highlights the fact that this is something that anybody could potentially achieve. If I, I, th I think there's two levels to the word nobility here. That mm -hmm. it's not necessarily blood; it's an understanding of one's responsibilities. And so, if you have been raised to believe that your job is to sacrifice yourself on behalf of your people, then it's horse and cart. And I'm seeing it as if you believe that if you are in a position of, of power, that you should be the first one to fall mm -hmm. before the powerless do, that's what makes you noble, is that understanding. And, and that's what it seems to me that even that god-awful section where we have to suffer through the entire trope of the woman sleeping with a man before she pulls a knife on him, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I love the opening of that section, but I agree that particular... But, but yeah. that's still being driven by the same thing, that she sees it as, I am the one, I can't ask anybody else to do this. Yes. I am the one who has to do this. In every case, right? I mean, outside of Mata and Cooney, it turns out, the, the times where that happens and the times where, where the nobles choose to be nobles, it's always the formerly noble houses of, of the different kingdoms. Um, well, now, now, maybe that also says some things about who else would try to seek power in the midst of a power vacuum and, yeah. and people who want to, you know, the, the person who should be in charge is never the person who wants it. But your point about cart and horse is interesting. I'm reminded, I took a class on uh, Tolkien in college, and the professors were both medievalists, and they were both interested in medieval religion, so they thought a lot about Tolkien's Catholicism as part of this. Oh, yeah. And they got into an argument. And I mean, it was kind of this running argument throughout the course, and it was continued afterwards and stuff, about whether it was possible for Frodo to have thrown the ring into Mount Doom. And whether by the fact that Frodo was taking that journey and was with the ring for so long, like in the doing of that, whether he, he gave up too much power to the ring. I mean, it was clear to both of them that by the time Frodo got there, he couldn't throw the ring in himself. Yeah. And he needed Gollum to do it. Um, Gollum as divine grace. Right. But it was not, they argued about whether or not it would be possible to make that journey and not end up in that situation. It was kind of an argument that was a distinction without a difference. And I feel like oh, to some extent, yeah. you know, to some extent, that's that's kind of where we're coming down. I think we, we agree that there are lots of places where people act nobly in tragic situations, and there are lots of places where people do not act nobly or competently. 
Well, I think I think there's another element in there as well, which okay. is that when you look at those examples of here is someone of a noble family who has the right DNA, they all seem to end up in situations that are pretty inevitable. And I mean inevitable in the sense of, first of all, that the story is driving them towards disaster or towards tragedy. Mm-hmm. So you can blame that much on the author. But there's also a remarkable lack of creativity that none of them ever seem to stop to say. And this is what an, this is what I was waiting for with the particular uh, section where the princess says, okay, well, this is what I'll do. That it, It's like they're not very bright. <laughs> That that they all just say, here's this disaster I'm heading for, and, and here's the sacrifice I can make, instead of doing what Cooney does, and, and even what his generals do, which is mm-hmm. to say, there's got to be some other way out of this. There's got to mm-hmm. be some way I can save my skin and not sacrifice the people. Whereas for these so-called nobles, you have the people who don't mean well, mm-hmm. like the ministers, who are like, is there a way I can get somebody else to sacrifice their skin? for me. So, okay, we know right off the bat these ministers are not noble. And then you have the nobles who are like, okay, well, I guess I'm I'm going to end up dead. You know, they never seem to think of like a third way where they could say, hey, what if we sat down and talked this out? You know, there's, there's no ingenuity going on. There's just this, well, I guess I need to sacrifice myself, but it's okay. Everybody will think fine of me after I'm dead. And Cooney doesn't play that game. He's like, let's come up with something. You know, however far-fetched or crazy a scheme it may be, there's a way out of this. We will not go gently into that inevitable tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also the key that, to me, says these so-called nobles who are sacrificing themselves aren't exactly fit to rule either if their first thought is, okay, well, I'll just burn myself up. And then, because they're now out of the picture. They they are not making sure that they stick around in the next day to continue to protect the powerless. All right, then I'm going to push you on that. Do you okay. think that Cooney is fit to rule? I am not into, I think his wife is better fit to rule. To be honest, I think Gia is, is better fit to rule than Cooney is. I I don't remember her character well enough. Yeah, see, there's another there's another problem with the story. She does. We're gonna yeah. get into gender. Yeah, but I'm not gonna do gender tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense that she is, first of all, she is aware of politics. She's also unafraid at points to be ruthless. She's also more patient. There are several points where she's like, I don't know all the details. Let me see. And I think that's an important feature. And I mean, this is just something we don't, we don't get to see. We don't get to see her actually making ruling decisions very often, right? Well, I, yeah. And a lot of this, nobody's ruling yet. And I mean, that's kind of a function of the book. And, but I mean, we see Cooney being a king. Right, like we see kind of what what he does and the fact that he can gather effective counselors around him and he can inspire people to lead him and he can find good generals. And And we also see that he finally gets into the imperial capital, discovers that they have really sexy concubines, and he spends, what, the next week and a half completely drunk and having sex every 15 minutes. 
Right. I'm like, uh-huh. I mean, nobody gets the perfect treatment. <laughs> exactly. So I have heard you saying the nobles who are noble and heroic in the face of inevitable tragedy, by virtue of the fact that they get stuck in inevitable tragedy, are probably not fit to rule because they don't find the third way out, which Cooney sometimes often does. Yeah, and and I would say it's not necessarily that they are unfit to rule so much as they are not the most fit to rule. I would say Mata is clearly unfit to rule. He has no problem sacrificing people to his own cause. But I I see it as only like a few shades better to be somebody who says, oh my goodness, the Germans are attacking. I'll just let them shoot me first. That that ultimately, on a rather cynical level, that's how I read some of these self-sacrificial behaviors, because you are not actually protecting the people the way you should. You are letting yourself go first. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.